I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Jess. And I'm recording on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, where the rest of this episode has also been recorded. I acknowledge the ongoing effects of colonisation and how it impacts the soil, the production of foods, and in turn, the foods we eat today. I pay my respects to the elders past and present. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. When I worked in the city, I always left the office for a walk during my lunch break. It was a good opportunity to stroll around and get some fresh air. There was this little sushi shop that was always empty. Then one day, it was gone. The windows were papered over and the glass clouded over with dust. I forgot about it until I was out on one of my walks and I saw it had been replaced by something else. The door was propped open. I could see that the space was cleaned out and the walls were lined with fridges filled with plastic containers. The sign read, Mumchan. When I walked in, I inspected every single container in the fridge and I wanted to eat it all. Soy pickled chilies, stir-fried radish with perilla seeds, bracken, aster, sweetened black beans, caramelised walnuts and anchovies, raw marinated pollock roe, and 11 billion varieties of kimchi. When I got back to the office, I sided up to my Korean workmate and asked her if she knew about Mumchan. She laughed and said she'd been waiting for me to ask her about it. So we agreed to go together to divide and conquer. We both grabbed a kimbap and agonised over which namul and kimchis to buy. We each left with a stack of containers so high we could hardly see. After a little jaywalking, we got back to the office. And finally, we got to eat. We laid out our spread and popped the container lids. The smells of sugar, salt, garlic and onion made my mouth water. Ew, that stinks, someone in the office said. And I was like, dude, you cook broccoli and canned tuna on the sandwich press. You can't talk. The audacity. This is the same person who mainlines kombucha, overshares details about their poops, and bangs on about gut health like they're a gastroenterologist. It was clear to me that this person had no idea about kimchi had no idea that what they were smelling was the fermentation that people pay a premium for. I'm Jess Ho, and this is Bad Taste, a podcast about who we are through the foods we eat. I love kimchi. I reach for it when I want to make a low-effort, mediocre meal taste instantly amazing. It's so normal to me, I don't even think about the smell. But when my colleague was grossed out by it, it got me thinking. 
How can Korean fermenters get the love they deserve? And why are fermented foods so polarising? So I'm going straight to the source and talking to Erum Choi, the owner and chef of Mumchan. Thank you. I've drooled over Adam's Instagram for years. We've emailed and texted a bit, but this is the first time I get to meet her in person. They say never to meet your heroes, so I'm super nervous. But she's so bubbly. It's a warm Friday morning and Adam's got her staff covering the shop. She's come over and is still on a high from making big batches of kimchi for the week. I bought some kimchi samples. She's also brought four containers with her, and I've got a pretty good idea of what they're filled with. <laughs> when I smell this, I'm just like, it's just so delicious because you can smell the like chilli and the funk and the garlic. She's brought the goods, anything for research. My mouth is actually salivating. <laughs> Kimchi isn't just made from cabbage. You can kimchi anything. So think of kimchi as a verb, a process, to kimchi. Adams brought a range of kimchis with her, including radish and spring onions. It's torturing me a little bit that we're talking rather than eating. But we'll get to that soon. You can't have a meal without kimchi. I don't think that's ever happened <laughs> in a Korean, on a Korean table. Kimchi making isn't just a tradition. It's a rite of passage for a Korean. And Adam's mum taught her everything she knows. From all the kimchi that she makes, the radish kimchi was the one that I've always liked the best. And she wouldn't teach me that recipe until I got married. I don't know what that was about. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very finicky, takes a long time. It's a lot of hard work. So you need the whole family. So that's why she taught me. (laughs) She needed my help. (laughs) And because you're handling tons of salt and spicy red pepper, it's really important to wear gloves. You'll see in Korea, they'll use the dishwashing gloves because it's high. It comes up to your um, elbows. We used to have yellow ones. It ruins the colour. Like, kimchi stain doesn't come out. (laughs) Yeah, you have to chuck them out. It just turns red anyway. So all the dishwashing um, gloves in Korea are pink (laughs) for that reason specifically for kimchi making. (laughs) When Adam first moved to Australia over 30 years ago, kimchi was near impossible to find. Enter Mumchan. So we opened with the hopes of bringing more traditional home-style Korean foods to Melbourne. Thankfully, the landscape has changed since then. There are a lot of Korean restaurants, but with Mumchan, we wanted to do things that were a little bit more interesting and different to what's already on offer. A lot of the Korean restaurants in Australia serve foods that go hand in hand with drinking. Think fried chicken, Korean barbecue and dukbokki. Erem wanted to bring another side of Korean food to Melbourne. So she chose a name to reflect her mission. So mamchan, we use the word mum intentionally. <laughs> so it reflects the food that your mum makes for you. Chan means pantan, which is side dishes in Korean. So I wanted a place where you could come when you miss your mum, <laughs> when you're homesick for Korean food, when you're feeling sick. I think that's when people feel the loneliest and really need that 
comforting and I think food is a great way to comfort the soul <laughs> so, yeah I wanted um, to have an outlet for people to be able to access homemade mum Korean food so we have a lot of people coming in asking for the normal kimchi <laughs> the, yeah the normal kimchi I know what they're talking about it's the fermented cabbage kimchi which has sour tones it's savory it's spicy uh, salty so kimchi can range from something quite fresh and crisp to something that's fizzy, funky and flaccid, depending on how long it's been fermented for. Kimchi is usually ready in days, but Erem says you can really ferment for as long as you want. She said in Korea they're selling 30-year-old kimchi, but that's even too hardcore for her taste buds. During the different stages of fermentation, it pairs well with different things. You can use it for different dishes. People like different stages of the fermented kimchis or like unfermented, whatever. Like everyone has their preference. Kimchi making is an ancient art. It dates all the way back to 57 BC. Koreans used to ferment and store vegetables in the brutally cold winter so that they didn't die of starvation. So it makes sense that Koreans seem to have this kind of innate understanding of what to eat with what. With so many different kimchis, they are the ultimate matchmakers. It can be a little bit difficult to consume a lot. <laughs> so it's more like a side condiment, but like Koreans eat kimchi like by the mouthful. <laughs> there are kimchis that you normally serve with certain dishes. Mm-hmm. So for example, with soups, we tend to have radish kimchi. With Korean barbecue... You want a sour tone kimchi that you can fry <laughs> once you're done with the meat and you have like that meat residual, like marinade or like the pork fat. You cook the kimchi on the pan um, mm-hmm. where the meat was and it's delicious. But that one needs to be a well-fermented, like a sour kimchi. In Korea, they'll give you like a large pot of radish kimchi and you just take as much as you want. <laughs> yeah. And because you can kimchi anything... Logically, there are seasonal kimchis that people hang out for. At the moment, we've got tobagi, which is a stuffed Korean cucumber. <laughs> but that cucumber is going to go out of season. The season's going to end soon, so probably have it for another couple of days. We like to do a lot of um, seasonal kimchis. So depending on what uh, vegetables are available or what ingredients we can get in that season, we like to use to make kimchi or different side dishes. We try to kind of go with the flow, with the weather flow. <laughs> I get excited when I see yongmu kimchi, a young radish that's still attached to the leaves. You can eat it in one bite. We try to have at least five or six different types of kimchi on offer. Fermented wise, we've got the wombok stuffed cabbage, the whole cabbage, which is known as the normal kimchi. (laughs) Radish kimchi, which is also a fermented one, is a little bit of mustard leaf, the spring onion kimchi. We've got white cabbage kimchi as well, which is like the normal cabbage kimchi without the chilli powder. So for people who can't eat spicy, um, that's the alternative. Before I got into Mum Chan's locally made kimchis, I was buying ones from Korean grocers. They're brought in on refrigerated boats where they're slowly fermenting. And we're a long way from Korea, 8,577 kilometres to be exact. That's a bloody long ferment. We want our kimchi to reflect freshness because it is made in Melbourne. It's consumed within a couple of weeks of it being made. It's not like the store-bought comes in from overseas. It takes time. We want the natural sweet flavours of the vegetables. 
but it takes a lot of experience and some trial and error to create the same flavours that Erum grew up with. The onions taste different every time they come. The cabbage tastes different every time. The radish, sometimes it's really spicy, sometimes it's really sweet. So it's balancing out those things. So while she's celebrating the seasons and using local produce, she tinkers with her mum's recipe. She's making kimchi that still tastes traditionally Korean, but uses Australian ingredients. So we try to use fruits to kind of counter that and balance that and trying to make a kimchi that reflects a kimchi that you would have in Korea. Mm-hmm. Mm. So that's one of our main focuses when we make kimchi. And of course the same ingredients grown in different parts of the world taste different. That's terroir. The produce in Seoul should taste different to Melbourne. Mass production of food has brainwashed people into believing there's a standard flavour. But when Adam's cooking, she is ultimately going by taste, not a recipe. She's cooking from what she remembers. This is what I like to call taste memory. It's something I see a lot of immigrants cooking with. And this is what Adam is doing by adding pureed fruits to mimic the sweetness of Korean onions. She's relying on her intuition, seasoning until something tastes right, and honouring the traditions she was taught by her mum. When people uproot their lives and settle in a different country, ingredients aren't available, or they're different. So when we cook, we use our memories as a guide to help us search for and recreate the flavour of home, of our childhoods. Recipes don't translate because key ingredients are being subbed out. So we use our memories instead of manuals. And to Adam's surprise, Mumchan isn't just celebrated by Korean Australians who want a taste of home. I thought we'd have a lot more Korean people, but it's 50-50. 50% Koreans, like Korean Koreans. <laughs> and 50% like non-Koreans, like white people. Yeah. <laughs> white people. Asians like me, Aussie Asians. And she sees an obvious reason for it. Health is a very important factor in food nowadays. So fermentation really does aid health, gut health and things like that. It's apparently very good for your skin as well. Because <laughs> so, it has like anti-aging properties. That's very important to Korean people. <laughs> so people come for the health benefits and some come for something else. And I find like pickles and like fermented foods have become really popular salted foods as well. So like salted octopus and salted shrimp, salted squids and things like that are something we offer as well. But I can't really eat it. But I find a lot of like white people coming to purchase it and eating it just on rice and it's amazing. It's like, I feel so accepted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. They notice the foods that are eaten in Korean TV shows and dramas and movies and things like that. And they're like, I, I saw this on such and such show. <laughs> I want to try it. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, 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 it is cool. I'm like, oh, yeah, I watched that too. <laughs> and I get what Adam means. When you grow up feeling like an outsider, seeing a food so important to your culture means everything. Sometimes all it takes is a jar in the supermarket fridge. I had the same feeling when I saw oyster sauce on the shelf. It's so great to see like kimchi in Woolworth or like in Coles in like those jars. It's amazing. (laughs) 
I mean, I've never thought of myself as like a, not a part of this community, but seeing the foods that I grow up with or I identify with in a store like Woolworths or Coles <laughs> makes me feel really a part of the community. I mean, I didn't realize I felt a little left out in the way of food or food culture, but being there, I feel represented. People are much more open to new foods uh, and expanding their Korean palate, which is something new. But if we really want to get the best understanding of this ancient tradition, the best way to fully analyse it is with our mouths. I'm in the kitchen with Erem as she talks me through her precious cargo. This one's the fermented cabbage kimchi, the normal kimchi <laughs> that's been stuffed. Well, immediately I get this swaft of garlic and I can actually smell the sweetness of the vegetables. I smell a lot of onion and almost like pear-like characteristics. So with the full cabbage kimchi, it's a quarter of a cabbage and it's sitting in its own kind of kimchi water that it's let out in the fermentation process. For her to give me what's in these plastic containers, she quarters whole cabbages, soaks them in a brine, drains them, washes off the excess salt, prepares the chilli paste, cooks a starchy glue, mixes them together and wipes every layer of cabbage by hand. She then rolls each quarter into itself and stores it until she thinks it's ready. I am lucky enough to skip to the good part. Um, an hour to two, maximum two hours. And this gets, um, oh. Oh, this is the... It's so sweet. Yeah. It's so good. And once it's been coloured, you put the paste. This is not my first Mumchan rodeo, but every bite always tastes like the first. She tells me that each tastes different depending on their fermentation length, and these are in different stages of transformation. So this one would need another day, I would say, and um, to get the full fermented flavour, but it should have started to develop. So. It doesn't taste fermented at all, and you just get like this kind of warmth from the chilli paste. It's not spicy, but it's like rounded. Mm, delicious. <laughs> I feel the crunch of the cabbage and the warmth of the chilli paste. Subtle onion undertones from the garlic chives. One of my favourite ingredients in the world. And just the tiniest hint of funk the smallest tickle of effervescence on your tongue. Just enough to make you want to take another bite. But what's actually happening, scientifically, to get us from pasty cabbage to mouth-watering kimchi? What exactly is fermentation? Fermentation is the microbial transformation of food, basically. <laughs> this is Min Chan. She's spent a lot of time thinking about fermentation. I grew up in Malaysia and I'm Chinese Malaysian, so fermented food was always there. I am currently a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne looking at fermented foods in relation to health. And I used to have fermented drinks business for five years. So that's how I got really, really interested in fermentation. Min sold Tibikos, but you might know it as water kefir. And much like other fermenters, she realised that just about everything ferments. If you think about it, fermentation is just food, time and bacteria. If you open your fridge, 
there's definitely things fermenting in there. Most of it unintentionally. And there are foods you eat that you might not even realise are fermented. A big one that probably most people don't think about is chocolate. So chocolate beans or cacao beans are fermented before they're made into what we know as chocolate. Coffee is also fermented. Some types of tea are fermented. And even some types of bread are fermented, like sourdough. So if you think about that, it's kind of hard to even conceptualise it as an industry. It's freaking huge. I think globally... I'd say it's in the, you know, billions of dollars area. In Australia, I couldn't give you exact numbers. It's difficult to group everything together when you say fermented foods because, say, dairy-based ferments can be quite different from vegetable-based ferments. But I think it's definitely been growing. She's seen the fermentation industry grow massively in the last decade, both in the home and industrially. Since Min's PhD focuses on fermentation for health, like Erem, she celebrates the health benefits. The whole thing with the gut microbiome and the microbiomes of our body and microbiomes of the environment, that's become a really hot topic in research. And I think that's filtered through very much into our thinking about food. People are always looking for some way to feel better and healthier and reconnect to foods that either they remember themselves or that they're Okay, I don't like to use the word, but discovering for the first time. (laughs) And we all know this person, right? They just discovered this new health craze. And Min is seeing it turn into a whole industry. In the wellness industry, it suddenly became like, if you eat this, it's going to make you healthy. It's going to make you amazing. It's going to protect you from COVID. I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow got told off by like the national medical director of the NHS in the UK because she was saying, if you eat kimchi and drink kombucha, you're going to, you know, save yourself from COVID. And old way Gwyneth isn't the only white person preaching the magic of kimchi. If we look back at history, this started a long time ago. Cast your minds back to those hippie American sun children. I think it got co-opted really starting even in the 60s and 70s. There's been a few waves of Western communities looking at fermentation as some sort of panacea and very exotic. I think that was mostly sort of hippies and back to the landers or people who are outside of the system going, uh, you know, we're going to eat these foods that are going to keep us super healthy. And our concept of taste and what is disgusting or not disgusting has always been a way that we separate ourselves from each other. And I think that it was a way for the white hippie cultures to say we're different from you. But I I do think that at that time it was okay for people to say, oh, this is kind of gross, but it's healthy, so I'm going to eat it. And then I think in the 90s, we had people like Sandal Katz, who was a big, as he says, fermentation fetishist or revivalist. (laughs) And, you know, he definitely spread the gospel of fermentation. And also that tied in with interest in macrobiotics and then Japanese fermentation was definitely like the gateway for white people. And then I think in the early 2000s, and then, you know, going into the recession, people started to rethink their jobs and then they're like, I'm going to go do something, you know, with my hands. And fermentation was the perfect thing because it was just so, like, back to the landy. Like Adam, Min sees just how important TV shows have been in repping for fermentation. Like, you know, The Humble Pickle? And, you know, like Portlandia, I don't know if you ever saw that episode from 2012. So it was like peak pickle, you know, and I think there was even recently a movie called An American Pickle where they sort of made fun of, you know, the whole fermentation shtick. And then by 2014, you had like Renee Redzepi and David Chang with their fermentation labs. And now it's like 
every gentrified neighborhood restaurant is making their own kombucha or kimchi or some version of kimchi or you know sauerkraut I think it's really become a fine dining thing and really for me like the peak thing is like the archetype is that white male chef and I definitely know a lot of these chefs who's basically like oh my god I'm making you know garums which is this ancient Roman you know <laughs> fermented fish sauce with sardine guts or whatever and also we're creating these new ferments that no one's ever heard of and we're using koji you know it's not even virtue signaling it's just sort of a way to again differentiate yourself and say that you're so smart and technical fermentation is so cool now huge it's even infiltrated min's country town I live in Castlemaine. It's a regional town, not a huge population, but our local IGA has like two long entire aisle length shelves of different kinds of kombucha and fermented drinks. So I think that alone <laughs> already shows you where it's gone. But the more Min and I spoke, the more I could see capitalist history repeating itself. There's been a lot of purchasing of stakes in fermented food or fermented product companies that's around the world like not just here you know coca-cola pepsi all these groups have been buying up artisanal brands and still saying they're artisanal because no one wants to drink sugary soft drinks anymore and these brands getting in on the fermentation trend are white owned and operated coca-cola its headquarters are in atlanta its ceo is a white brit named james quincy pepsi its ceo is a spanish guy named ramon laguarta and it's also based in America. And it's not just the industry white-owned companies are controlling. White gatekeepers took the narrative when it comes to fermented foods, and not just fermented foods from their own cultures, but from predominantly East Asian cultures. And it became about satisfying white tastes. So I think there was a lot of poorly made kimchi, and there still is, and, you know, foods that were called by traditional names, but not actually made that way. So there's a lot of misrepresentation of especially BIPOC ferments. BIPOC people can do this themselves to their own food. It's not just white people who do it. I think what's changed is certainly now there's more of this chase for authenticity. So like, you know, my product has the authentic taste, but it either doesn't, or you're taking up the space of someone who's been making it that way for a long time. There's clearly an appetite for a traditional tasting product, which means it has to be traditionally made by people, pink gloves, taste memory, microbial transfer. But the crass thing about making something on a large scale in a capitalist society is that the people attached to the hands cost money, as does time. So machines can shred and mix instead of people painting each cabbage leaf with paste. But industrialization tries to engineer time out of the process. It's counterintuitive since slowness is integral to fermentation. What is it without it? I don't think you can be even a home fermenter without the process making you think about slowing down, first of all, and being patient and waiting, but also understanding a lot about aroma and texture and taste, and also just thinking about microbes and what role that plays in our life. I am but a simple creature. I only ever bought fermented foods for the flavour, rather than the overall health benefits. I just loved what kimchi was on the most basic level, a spicy, garlicky, funky vegetable that I put on food to make it taste not so boring. 
Erib taught me that there is no right recipe for kimchi because every family is chasing the flavour of their ancestors. And like with most things that get commercialised, fermented products often lose their cultural connection once they get scaled up and marketed purely for its health benefits. My priorities for purchasing have always been about supporting small producers and sticking it to the man. So my exploration into kimchi has only solidified that for me. And stinking up the office with super delicious kimchi that's BIPOC fermented and PhD candidate approved. That's a real bonus too. Hang around after the credits for a kochari recipe. Don't worry, it's the gateway drug to kimchi. Bad Taste is an SBS podcast. It's hosted and produced by Jess Ho. Our series producer is Beth Atkinson Quinton. Our producer is Bez Zodare. Our sound designer is Nicole Pingon. Our editor is Zoe Tennant. And I'm Michelle Macklem, the executive producer. The very cultured SBS team is Rachel Sibley, Carolyn Gates, Joel Supple, and mix engineer Max Gosford. Our theme music is Lang Lang by Rainbow Chan. Our delectable podcast art is by Joanna Hu. Thanks to Adam Choi and Min Chan. We're back next week with more funky flavors, so make sure you follow Bad Taste in your favorite podcast app so you get every episode freshly brewed straight onto your device. If you enjoyed the show and want to support us, don't put a lid on it. Follow SBS and SBS Food and hit the share button to tell all your Whole Foods health friends what's really up with fermentation. This is a recipe for kochari. You'll need one small head of Napa cabbage washed and cut into bite-sized pieces. One bunch of garlic chives cut to five centimetre lengths. Salt, one cup of gochukaru, half a diced onion, one diced Fuji apple, 10 cloves of peeled garlic, one inch of peeled ginger, three tablespoons of Korean fish sauce, one tablespoon of Korean salted shrimp, and one tablespoon of roasted sesame seeds. Salt the cabbage thoroughly, a few tablespoons will do, in a colander for 30 minutes. Toss and leave for another 30. Rinse the salt off when it's wilted and squeeze out the excess moisture. Place all the other ingredients except for the garlic chives, gochikaru and sesame seeds into a blender with a quarter cup of water and blend until smooth. Transfer this paste into a large bowl and stir in the gochikaru. Add the cabbage and the garlic chives and toss until combined. Finish with sesame seeds and eat. For the full recipe and instructions, head to our website on sbs.com.au slash bad taste.